Hello, I'm Martin. And I'm Angelina. And this is the CX Cast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the CX Cast. Joined as always by my colleague Martin. Hey, Martin. So we are deep into prediction season. And as we have mentioned before, Forrester predictions take a specific form. We take ongoing trends. We look at data and we make predictions based on what the data is telling us. So not the wild and crazy west of predictions, but the predictions shaped by the data we have before us. And we do this across multiple industries and Martin and I are here to make connections from those industry predictions to customer experience. Today, joining us, we have Shannon Germain. Hey, Shannon. Hello, thanks for having me. Of course, and Judy Weeder. Welcome back, Judy. Hello, thanks for having me back. It's exciting to have both of you on. Judy, starting with you, can you tell us a little bit about why you are passionate about healthcare predictions? Ha, of course. Back in the day when I was a Forrester client, I actually worked at a health insurer. And so health insurance, health care in general, became more important to me actually after I had kids and suddenly realized I was responsible for someone else. So getting into the healthcare ecosystem was fantastic. I spent a number of years there before coming over to Forrester. And so healthcare has has been a passion of mine for several years before I even started covering it. And I'm just delighted to get to work with Shannon on stuff like this. And Shannon, this is this is more than just a passion or a cross section of your research. You focus a lot on healthcare. Can you tell us a little bit about your research background? Sure. I spent about 15 years as a practicing nurse at the bedside, both at large university-based hospitals, but then also I did some travel nursing at smaller community hospitals. So I got a good feel of the different type of uh, care that was provided throughout the country. Before uh, Forrester, I worked on a clinical decision support tool that directly impacted the synergy between payers and providers. So I am super passionate about healthcare. So I like to bring my my provider expertise to the table here at Forrester and make the connections uh, for our clients. Awesome. Yeah. And Shannon's got a very casual, calm demeanor about her when she delivers the rough news of her predictions, which is awesome. Of course, Judy's articulated as always. So we've got it covered. Martin, I should caveat right now that the three of us, aside from you, are Yankees. We spend a lot of time doing research in the U.S. We're, we're very close to what's happening in healthcare in the U.S. So these predictions may take more of a U.S angle to them, but you're here to help us make those global connections. Yeah, the the clue was in payers and providers, wasn't it? So where I am in the UK, we have the wonderful NHS, which in theory is free at point of, point of delivery. So yeah, your mileage may vary around the world, but wherever possible, we'll talk about the US trends, which is what this report, the predictions is about. But we'll kind of contextualize it into what else is happening throughout the world and how you as a provider in the UK and France in wherever might be able to think about this. So if we start with the, the prediction that's probably most linked to customer experience, it's really about implementing technology, smart tech in hospitals, and how that's going to transform customer experience. So let's start with what is the prediction and what do we see happening? We predict that smart tech in hospitals will actually increase by 15% this year, but patient experience 
will not be uh, consistent with that change that's recognized by the hospital. So in this context, when we say smart technology, we don't just mean Internet of Medical Things or connected devices. If we lean in a little bit further, then we can actually take a look at ambient intelligence solutions. What these solutions do, they collect uh, environmental and physiological data through contactless uh, solutions and wearable devices. They also leverage machine learning to interpret data. They can monitor patients in real time and even provide insights into patient activities. Now, the reason for the emphasis on these tools is actually because they're becoming more accessible um, with a more competitive and evolving market. So that means that they're also becoming more affordable. And they can quite literally, in many cases, actually perform clinician tasks or uh, augment their work. And this is crucial for much larger issues like the clinician shortage throughout the United States and even on a global basis, where there is not a direct one-to-one short-term solution that we're seeing. So in terms of healthcare organizations and the challenges that they're they're projected to face in 2024, they're not all that different from where they've been in 2023 and even 2022. There's a financial component here where there's a complete drop-off of grants and other pandemic-related assistance. So health systems are now just very strapped for cash. There's also clinical hardships, like I mentioned, uh, staffing shortages. And this is also nothing new, only we we know it's not going to get any better. So there's, you know, projected by 2030, there's going to be potentially up to 400,000 nurses not at the bedside that, that need to be there. Also about 100,000 physicians and pharmacists, for example, they're a, a bit uh, harder to gauge and define what the numbers are going to be, but we know retail pharmacies are actually operating at reduced hours because of staffing shortage today. When we talk about ambient intelligent solutions, there's two examples that come to mind that are being put into place as we speak and will continue to grow and over the next year. The first is automated clinical documentation for physicians during patient visitation. So can you t- tell us a little bit about what is that? I mean, I think of like natural word processing and like get a little scared about inaccuracies, but what's the state of that technology? In terms of automated clinical documentation, right now there's been huge advancements, even leveraging leveraging generative AI in during visits between patient and a physician. And it's more than just a transcription service. It actually has the ability to sift out all the unimportant, unrelated medical content and provide a thorough summary for the physician after the visit. This saves the physician documentation time later after the visit, but also it enhances the patient experience during that encounter. Got it. So around the the smart tech that's coming into hospitals, are hospitals generally adopting whatever's at the forefront of technology? Are they slow? Are they wary of tech adoption? Because of what's at stake, physician, excuse me, patient lives. Historically, health systems have been very slow to adopt innovative technologies. However, we're seeing an increase in adoption. Our own Forrester data tells us that healthcare leaders are excited to get on board and explore opportunity, especially with the current state, as I mentioned, with tight budgets and a shortage of uh, clinicians. They are becoming more open and accepting 
to innovation and use of of new technology. But that being said, historically, not always the most tech savvy. They are beginning to build up their human skill set and using consultant agencies to really develop a more robust tech savviness and bringing on more innovation. Is this technology solutions in search of a problem to solve or are we are, are we designing these experiences from the patient or the clinician back? So rarely is the patient experience consistent within an entire health system in general for any number of reasons, but innately there's been uh, silos of communication and uh, technology that exists. This will be this will be no exception. Some services and departments will integrate these solutions, and others will not. Maybe because of budget, maybe because of uh, varying uh, business priorities or patient needs. So, th- for that reason and others, the patient experience will continue to be inconsistent, even under the same roof. Also worth mentioning in healthcare, another reason for inconsistent experiences is because some providers will use ambient intelligent solutions in an optimal fashion, so to speak, and others will not fully adopt or maybe won't fully incorporate it into their practice. And right there, a patient going from one physician to another physician under the same roof will have inconsistent experiences. So our focus, our focus on CX basics, mapping the journey, understanding, empathizing with the, with the patient in this instance, and, and modeling out how are they going to flow through even just one department within a hospital, never mind the entire value chain of healthcare. Those basics just are still really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's move on to our second prediction, which takes us from the providers to the payers. And in this instance, Judy, we know that's where you come from. What are we predicting our health insurers are going to do? Sure. We are predicting that a third of U.S. health insurers are going to incorporate non-traditional benefits into their health plans. So let's talk about what that means. Um, When we think about traditional benefits, it's going to be I can go and get a sick visit. I can go see a specialist. I can go to the emergency room, that sort of thing. But now we're talking about extending it even farther. And so some of the examples, a lot of the innovation are um, those things are coming out of the government sponsored programs related to Medicare and Medicaid. So Medicare Advantage, which is the private plan that layers on top of the government available, the government issued Medicare service that basically makes your Medicare feel like a health plan like you've gotten from your employer. It, it just makes it a very, very similar experience. Those kinds of plans are now incorporating all kinds of extended benefits that really provide tons of value to that member without that member having to spend a lot more money. They're government subsidized. So the plans get paid for every single member that they enroll. The better that they do in terms of getting to better clinical outcomes and better member experience the more that bonus comes in from the federal government to encourage, to incent them to add more benefits into the plans. And so the kinds of things that we're seeing are items like, for example, food deliveries. When a a member, when a 
patient is discharged from, say, a skilled nursing facility, maybe post rehab, or they're discharged from a hospital after having had some kind of a surgery, there are a bunch of plans that are actually delivering meals directly to that that patient's home. So they don't have to stress about cooking. The food's just brought right to them. In addition to that, we see a lot of stuff around transportation, making it possible for the member to be able to get to and from the doctor's office, to and from the pharmacy, to and from lab visits, or maybe to go get like an x-ray or, or some other kind of screening done. So they're trying to find ways to extend these benefits to make it easier to get to those better health outcomes. Now, in addition to that, we're seeing folks going farther. So for example, some of the plans are incorporating food benefits, not just for when someone just got out of a hospital or a skilled nursing facility, but also just in general. And so this is where we start to get to what we refer to as those social determinants of health. Those are the other more environmental factors that can affect whether or not somebody is going to get to that better health outcome. And for example, I can think of you know one plan in particular that I, I had looked at that offered for folks that are in the that are considered dual eligible. So they're eligible both for Medicare based on age, but they're also eligible for Medicaid based on income that they get monthly food boxes. And it's not like here's your your government issue cheese and spam. It's it's much better than that, right? It's fresh fruits and vegetables, it's meat, it's it's fresh breads, it it's all kinds of stuff, but on a monthly basis. So really trying to tackle the fact that if people can't afford to eat and they're, they're stressing about finances, then they have to figure out, like, I need to pay for my rent. I need to pay for maybe my cell phone because that's my only source of internet access. I need to pay for my car and my gas because that's how I get to and from work. So things like medication or food may start to fall farther down on the list. So the health plans incorporating these non-traditional benefits shows that they're starting to think about their member as a whole person instead of just a number on a spreadsheet. So really, really cool stuff. And and we're seeing more and more of that extending transportation benefits to be able to take people to even more places than just to the doctor's office, Uh, extending gym programs. So it's not just go to this specific gym or these five gyms, but literally you can go to any gym in the country and you're covered or even do virtual things. So it's, it's great to see this kind of innovation happening, but the expectation is that it's going to become so popular and Financially, they'll be able to scale it, that it will start to get included in more plans, which means that it will create even more competitive stress, which makes me happy because it's better ultimately for that member, for that, that individual who's trying to get that health care. So that's, that's where we're coming from on that particular prediction. And will this drive up costs? Not necessarily. I mean, that's the cool thing. So there are other things that are driving up costs for the members. And that has to do with the fact that overall healthcare in the US is incredibly expensive. We are more expensive for basically every single service by comparison to other countries. And, you know, one could argue that it has to do with the scale, the size, sheer size, you know, 330 odd million people. But it could also be related to the fact that we are super into that whole capitalism thing. And so we're, we're going to make that money back. But the problem then is if you're not charging a Medicare patient or a, you know, or Medicare member, and you're not charging a Medicaid member for as much 
for their plan and you're not reimbursing as much to the doctors and to the hospitals, then that money has to come from somewhere. So where does it come from? It comes from the employer market, the people who are getting employer-sponsored coverage, the people who are going into the exchanges, even though that's sort of pushed down as much as possible by the feds. So it's it's a challenge. The money is going to come from somewhere and it just kind of gets sort of moved around. But these additional benefits, that's why I'm thinking about like the scale of this. If If a health plan is going into, let's say, one of those big gym programs that enables them to offer not just gyms within a certain region, but gyms nationally and offer virtual plans in particular, like virtual access to to gyms, that's not something that you have to limit. You can actually scale that across your entire book of business. And once you do that, then in theory, the value can be realized across a much broader set of people. Instead of thousands, you're talking about tens or hundreds of thousands of members potentially that could benefit from access to do Pilates when they're in their hotel room, for example. And so that means that you can get to better health outcomes across a broader set of people and better health outcomes equals fewer trips to the emergency room. It equals fewer hospitalizations and and admits. It may mean that someone who's on the generic, cheaper generic diabetes medication that helps keep their type 2 diabetes in check never gets to the point where they need to get to the more expensive stuff that's farther up on the formulary and costs more money. So it you can get to better health outcomes by scaling this stuff. And in theory, then the plans don't need to pass that amount along to their members. There may be other things that they pass along, but these things should not, in theory, cost a ton more. It should be scalable. It's a story of access moving in two directions because you're talking about a lot of preventative health and supporting services, but your next prediction is about medical deserts, and it is exactly what it sounds like, isn't it? It's painful. So a number of years ago, I... I saw this uh, really a number of years ago. I saw that the U.S. Department of Agriculture had started to talk about food deserts, you know, these areas where there's no grocery store where you can get or place where you can go and get fresh fruits and vegetables, fresh meats, things like that, um, within a reasonable distance of you. And we're seeing the same thing happening with medical deserts, and it's it's getting much worse, in particular with certain areas. Um, maternity is one of the ones that's hurting very, very hard right now and is only getting worse due to the political climate. There's there's really no kinder way to put it. It's just how it is. So I, I think what we're looking at at the moment, we're expecting that medical deserts are going to cover 85% of the landscape, but not necessarily in the places that one would most consider. I mean, the, the easy answer is, ah, oh, it's just going to be in the rural areas, right? We're just going to shut it down in the farm country. But that's not just happening there. It's also happening in urban environments as well. So, I mean, Shannon, I'd love to pass this one over to you as well. But I mean, I think the thing for me that's sort of distressing is that we have a, a challenge politically where if we think about the maternity piece in particular, that we have folks that are coming out of med school trying to figure out where they want to go practice And it's somewhat of a chicken and egg. If there's nothing there, I don't know that I want to go create it if I'm coming fresh out of school. But then if I do go to a place and maybe that place is tenuous at best in terms of its ability to maintain, then do I even bother going there? Do I go somewhere else? And does it create this almost like self-feeding cycle of we don't have enough clinicians to support it? And so therefore you have 
people who are driving potentially hundreds of miles to go get maternal care. Yeah, all of the above. I think just to expand on what Judy was saying is that the the common misconception <clears throat> is that a medical desert, in quotes, occurs somewhere in a rural area in the United States where Americans don't have a brick and mortar hospital or doctor within 50 miles or 30 miles, maybe even 15 miles, right? But what medical desert means today is that there's actually a lack of internet access, it could be, including telehealth, it could be a lack of smart devices, or in fact, it can be that there is a brick and mortar right down the street, but it doesn't have that maternity care or that rehabilitation care, behavioral health. Right now we're seeing trends across the board. We know for certain there's not enough primary care physicians available. So you may have a primary care physician, but you need to wait three weeks to see them for your common cold, which is getting worse by the day. Think of that. That is that is huge. Well, you, we said we weren't going to do international, but I'm sorry. Welcome to the UK. <laughs> Try getting a GP appointment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that is certainly uh, an international trend. And I'm sure some of these are as well, because we're not just talking about specialized services. However, if we if we really think about this concretely, if we think about maternity care right now, this isn't just devastating for that woman. This impacts her entire family. Does she get to her prenatal visit? If she actually does, is she using the money that she was going to use this week for, for groceries for her family? Does she have to take the entire day off of work because now she has to travel really far to get to you know where she needs to be? And then there's another layer here, <clears throat> which is when a department does close within a brick and mortar hospital, where does everyone go? Do they go to the next closest hospital, uh, usually resulting in overwhelming that hospital? So the list of questions in this, just this single scenario can go on and on, and the impact can actually be felt throughout a community and impact that community's economy. So I think it's really important not just to say, oh, how is that woman going to deal with it? It, it? The impact goes on well beyond just her and her baby's care. We've just had a wealth of information thrown at us. Uh, I'm still processing a lot of this. We actually have one more prediction you guys did, but I, I think we should leave it to the listeners to go learn more about the threat of cyber attacks in healthcare. We left the scariest one for you guys to go check out yourselves. <laughs> but Shannon, Judy, any, any um, advice to... Uh, the CX pros in the healthcare industry as they they go into this crazy, crazy year? So number one, and this is my advice to everyone who's in customer experience, regardless of industry, is please keep your feet moving. Don't stop what you're doing. Even small improvements can have big outcomes, especially over you know, scale or over time. And helping even one person can be a really big deal. And then that leads me to the second piece of advice, which is with respect to healthcare. The things that we're talking about are specific to the U.S. because that's that's where our primary healthcare coverage is. But the reality is these kinds of things can happen anywhere. So we talk about the bad things happening or even the good things happening. Those can happen in any part of the world, right? So it's on each of us that are involved in the healthcare ecosystem to try to enable access. When we enable access 
and we educate individuals on how to take advantage of the entire ecosystem, then we're going to drive better health outcomes. When we drive better health outcomes and the overall costs go down. When the overall, and, and also, by the way, then we get to live our lives, right? When you're not worried about the fact that something's wrong with you because there's nothing wrong, you just go about your day. The best thing for your health insurance card to do if you have a health, a private health insurance plan is for it to sit in your wallet and never have to be used because you're just going about your day and everything's great. But that can't happen if the ecosystem doesn't work together. So it's on all of us to try and make this ecosystem better. If you want to learn more about our predictions, you want to read about that cybersecurity prediction in healthcare, if you want to learn more about predictions across all the other industries we covered, absolutely go to www.forrester.com forward slash predictions and you can find out more there. Otherwise, thank you to our panel today. Thank you, Angelina. And as I say, that's a wrap. And thank you to producers Ellie and Julia, without whom none of this would happen. If you want to get in touch, email us at cxcast at forester.com. As always, you can find us at forester.com or on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tune in next time for more CX Insights.